Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Not long ago, tobacco control researchers and public health officials openly discussed a possible worldwide end game to combustible tobacco use, thus preventing the death of up to 1 billion smokers by the end of this century. But today the focus on endgame is forgotten as the tobacco control movement intensifies efforts to eradicate vaping, the only technology proven to be both scalable and appealing to smokers as a viable alternative to smoking. Tobacco control fixates on preventing uptake of smoking and complete cessation of nicotine use, while technologies like vaping represent the principles of reduced risk and harm reduction. Joining us today on RegWatch is Dr. Derek Yock, President of the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World and former World Health Organization Cabinet Director and Executive Director for Non-Communicable Diseases and Mental Health, where he was deeply involved with the development of the WHO's Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, or FCTC. Dr. Yach, thanks for joining us on RegWatch. Wonderful to be here. Thanks, Brent. Oh, it's good to have you. To get started, you're at the forefront of global of the global debate over e-cigarettes and other harm reduction you know, technologies such as snooze. Please share with our viewers some of your background, beginning with the WHO through to where you are today as president of the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World. Well, thanks, Brent. Um, I'd like to sneak in a little bit before WHO, yes. Um, I'm South African and American. And um, in my uh, early years when I studied medicine, um, I realized that um, tobacco control was neglected in, in South Africa and in fact worldwide. And uh, that really got me interested during my career. Um, people often forget that South Africa until the early 1990s was banned from participation in the World Health Organization under apartheid. Uh, and despite that, many of us felt that um, the WHO literature on everything from primary health care to the importance of smoking was important. So when uh, they had the very first World No Tobacco Day in 1988, we celebrated it, uh, even though we were not members of WHO, by having the first major review of the impact of tobacco in South Africa, particularly focusing on the long-term impact on black South Africans and what we needed to do in terms of policy. That document later became important when the Mandela government came in and uh, Kozuzana Zuma became the Minister of Health. And I, I was able to work with them when the first major legislative changes happened uh, in the early 1990s. I then went off to the World Health Organization um, as the first South African to rejoin WHO after regaining membership. And my first tasks actually were not tobacco specific. They were really focused on asking the question, what do we need to transform primary health care and health policy beyond 2000? And in that process, it was very clear that the era of communicable diseases being the only concern were being displaced by non-communicable diseases and the major risks of which tobacco, unhealthy diets, physical inactivity, alcohol were important. And that was embedded in that work. When Gro Harlem Brundtland became the Director General of WHO, uh, she asked me to lead a major initiative on tobacco, uh, given the size of the problem and the potential for us to have a real impact on saving lives around the world. Um, that we can talk about later. I then left WHO um, at the end of um, 2004, and uh, spent uh, a lot of time in other areas of global health. Um, and um, 
It was um, in 2015 that I was working with Vitality uh, in a program to promote mass-based health promotion that it became very clear that while we were starting to do well on promoting physical activity through incentives and a range of measures, we were still not doing well in terms of improving the cessation rates among adult smokers worldwide. And when I looked around at what had been going on since I left WHO, the biggest change that really surprised me was the way in which the um, e-cigarette movement had taken off across Europe. Um, And so I was asked by Spectator Health to write a piece reflecting on what did this actually mean going forward, which I did and attracted the attention at the time of Philip Morris International. Um, And the long and the short of the story is that that ended uh, in a year of discussion, leading that to the fact that if we really want to make make an impact globally, we needed to have a foundation with funding which would be independently managed by scientists uh, to accelerate the use of reduced risk products, improving cessation at the same time, and tackling many of the other gaps that we were seeing emerging. And that's how the foundation got started. And so that is the foundation for a smoke-free world. So I'm just going to jump to that right now. Here's the homepage of it. So walk us through exactly what this animal is. It got funding uh, from Philip Morris. So what's the story behind that? How big is the funding? How generous? Well, the funding is um, just under a billion dollars over 12 years. And um, I certainly can remember the days when we were discussing what amount would be needed, which is an interesting question. You could say it's infinite. But remember at the time, uh, in the last few years, the level of funding for global tobacco control has remained extremely modest, with really only Bloomberg Philanthropies and to a less extent the Gates Foundation putting any serious money on the table. And most of that is not going towards research, science, cessation, adult cessation, and of course, none is going to harm reduction. None is going to alternatives to farmers. And um, that was the rationale behind the foundation, which really has three big goals and one very brave overall goal to end smoking in a generation. And by smoking, we're talking about combustible cigarette use as well as toxic non-smoking, smokeless tobacco products, the kind of things that cause a lot of oral cancer across India. And the three objectives really are the pillars of our work strengthen the science base, strengthen the research that would lead to action around better cessation and harm reduction products with an explicit focus in developing countries and a special focus on the importance of women. Second, recognizing that we are starting to see a decline uh, in smoking rates for the first time worldwide, we need to start thinking about the most vulnerable farming communities. And so a focus on looking for alternative livelihoods for farmers particularly in Malawi and later hopefully elsewhere. And finally, and maybe more, most intriguingly, we saw that we were witnessing ways in which companies were being stimulated to change their basic business models. Um, and we thought that needs to be applied not to one company, but all companies. So we have a tobacco industry transformation program, which has the goal of trying to incentivize companies to move out of the combustible market into a wide range of less harmful, uh, reduced risk products and maybe other things over time. And that is aimed at encouraging the investment community to reward companies which are showing meaningful change and also stimulate change within those companies. So those are the three pillars, 
science to reduce smoking through better harm reduction and cessation, alternative livelihoods for farmers, and transforming the sector. And maybe explain this index here. Is there, if I follow through here, do we get to see anything about the index? A little bit right here. So phasing out high-risk products, developing responsibility, offering risk-reduced alternatives. It's funny, risk-reduced alternatives seems to be quite a bit of a, uh, seems to be quite of a bit of a, I don't know what the right word is, but it, or, but the phrase though is not well accepted, is it, at, at the WHO level? Or am I incorrect on that? No, you, you're quite right. I think the very notion of reduced risk, arm reduction, which is so intimately understood in public health generally, you think of the HIV AIDS world, we wouldn't have made progress. You, know, you think of condoms, you think of um, safer sex programs, you think of needle exchanges in the drug area. It's so intimately accepted, yet it's not accepted in the world of tobacco control. Yet we will probably talk about it, but when we got to the framework convention, we had to define what was meant by tobacco control. And in the very definition of tobacco control are embedded the notion of harm reduction. Um, so it was there right from our early conceptualization, but it hasn't played out and WHO has not got behind it. In fact, they've done the opposite. They've vigorously opposed it. So let's, uh, and uh, two things, Derek, uh, I'm going to get you to just tip uh, your laptop uh, or your camera down a little bit, just so we can see a bit more of your chin. It's a bit of a tight shot. And I just switched our feed over so you could see what we're showing uh, the viewers. I realized that you were still just looking at me. So that is better. It's always better to have the head cut off than a chin. So I've got up uh, here, Derek, so nobody saw the adjustment. I've got up here a um, slide here, and we're just going to go through a couple of the things from the SETC. So this is, it was a process of uh, up to like 2003, I guess, when they started to do the signatures. So the negotiations had gone on before that. It was closed and enforced in 2005. So it's 15 years now that we've had uh, this, which is the first treaty negotiated under the auspices of the WHO. It's a it's evidence based. It, it, I'm going to use their language. I'm not. I might have a comment on that particular one, but they state it's evidence based. Uh, it's an evidence based treaty which reaffirms the right of all people to the highest standard of health. It is a paradigm shift in regulatory strategy. In contrast to previous efforts, it asserts importance of reducing demand. So instead of just uh, going after uh, the suppliers, it is actually trying to reduce demand. Um, and then here's a definition of tobacco control, and this is directly from the treaty. Tobacco control means a range of supply, demand, and harm reduction strategies that aim to improve the health of a potential of a population by eliminating or reducing their consumption of tobacco products and exposure to tobacco smoke. And obviously, secondhand smoke is included in all that. In the preamble... There was a nice, long, you know, seriously concerned, deeply concerned, alarmed, acknowledged, reflecting. Uh, and so some of the issues that I've called out here is the spread of tobacco epidemic. The spread of the tobacco epidemic is a global problem, devastating worldwide health, social, economic and environmental consequences to smoking and secondhand smoke. Scientific evidence unequivocally establishes death, disease and disability as a result of cigarette smoke and secondhand smoke. 
Now, this is a little bit long, we don't, not the whole thing, but I wanted this in here because it emphasizing the special contribution of non-governmental organizations and other members of civil society not affiliated with the tobacco industry, including health professional bodies, women's, youth, environmental and consumer groups, and academic and healthcare institutions to tobacco control efforts nationally and internationally, and the vital importance of their participation in national and international tobacco control efforts. I've included that because those are the foot soldiers in the war on vaping, if I might put it that way, recognizing the need to be alert to any efforts by the tobacco industry to undermine or subvert tobacco control efforts and the need to be informed of activities of the tobacco industry that have a negative impact on tobacco control efforts. And then lastly is um, then the famous article 5.3, which is in setting and implementing their public health policies with respect to tobacco control, parties shall act to protect these policies from commercial and other vested interests of the tobacco industry in accordance with national law. So we will get into this later in the show, but is that not right there, the heart of like the deplatforming? You don't get it, the tobacco industry or if you're an organization funded even through an agency such as yours that has got primary funding from the tobacco industry, you're shut out. Is that not correct? That is that is the correct, the way it was, uh, the way it's been interpreted. And, um, you know, within um, 10 days of the foundation being launched, uh, WHO issued a statement um, saying that uh, people should not work with us um, on the basis of us representing the interests of the tobacco industry, which uh, we clearly do not um, I think what you're also highlighting uh, is, is a very important uh, point about what finally made it into the final text. What people don't realize is that the work that got us to the Framework Convention started five years before, in 1998. Um, in fact, um, I'm pleased to say that the very first working group before we got going properly was held, believe it or not, in Vancouver, um, hosted by the uh, government of British Columbia. Really? And in that very first meeting, uh, which I recall extremely well, we discussed many of these elements which later came out. Um, one of the discussions was about what was the role of the tobacco industry likely to be in the process. Remember that by 1998, we had the first major court case happening in Minnesota, where the decision of the Minnesota court case, the agreement reached, wasn't just a financial payout, but was a requirement that all the documents and all the discovery material needs to be placed in a publicly available repository of information that would be easily searchable. So those are really the, the documents, particularly of the major multinationals who are active in the US. It didn't include, obviously, the Chinese state monopoly and others. When we heard that, we started looking into those documents in the early searches. And what we found was extraordinary evidence of a sustained effort by the tobacco industry to subvert WHO's policy going back to the late 70s, the 80s, and even the early 90s, um, trying to uh, ensure that the science was distorted, the science on whether it was um, uh, indoor air pollution through a very large study in Iowa, um, that advertising campaigns and advertising bans were, were very strongly opposed that taxes were rigorously opposed, and you could see through the documents who led the charge, who were the finance ministers, let's say, on the take. Uh, so one of the first things we realized was that if we were going to succeed 
um, in having an open, truly transparent discussion during the framework convention, we needed to put out all the evidence we knew about industry's bad behavior in the past, which we did through an inquiry uniquely carried out in the UN. There's been no other like it. It was a joint uh, piece of work by the um, WHO and the World Bank, with Jim Wolfenson being on the World Bank side. And it basically put on charge governments um, who were going to use arguments that had been well-worn by the industry. Some of them were that the economic uh, hardship that would be caused by taxes would far outweigh any gain, something which later got thwarted. I mention that because there were two aspects to that that played out years later. The one was that uh, people involved in that correctly saw the enormous damage and dangers that the industry had done to subvert and slow down global action on tobacco control. But I think they were unable then to accept, as time moved on, that some tobacco companies were looking for alternative ways uh, to actually reduce the death and disease through different products. So for that in mind, one of the reasons that we had the phrasing harm reduction in there was because we were aware through the people who were advising WHO, some of the leading scientists in the world, uh, people still very active in the field, that there was a lot of research going on inside the public and the private sector about potentially separating nicotine from the stuff that kills you. So one of the meetings held, believe it or not, in WHO headquarters was one where we invited Philip Morris, Japan Tobacco, British American Tobacco and others to address one of the early meetings of the WHO Regulatory Committee to tell us what did they know about harm reduction, what was on the plate. This was 1998-1999. Sadly, there was not much that they told us uh, which was particularly illuminating. And I think the whole, that was the very last time, the first and the very last time, that the tobacco industry were actually invited into the hallowed halls of WHO. Mm. And when the door shut, of course, the action was accelerating behind the laboratories and the scientific community and the scientists being inside the industry, which we later saw in terms of many of the products which started coming up. So just to make sure then for our audience, they've, they've got this picture at the time at WHO when uh, the framework uh, convention for tobacco control, the treaty was put together, you were there, you were lead leading that effort, one of the people leading or the leader of the effort? I was the head of the Tobacco Free Initiative, which was the entity responsible for leading it. And I had a you know spectacular team. I had somebody seconded for initially from Canada, Douglas Betcher, who went on uh, to actually lead some of the work. Uh, Chitra Subramanian was really creaky, a very strong investigative journalist who'd run Brundtland's campaign and somebody who fearlessly has really brought down governments through the Bofors weapons uh, story. But she really helped us rethink and reframe the debate away from being one at the time, which was on human frailty. People are just weak and they can't give up to one of corporate accountability. And in that mm -hmm. process, we realized we needed to have a very strong NGO movement, which we didn't have. You had individual cancer societies, heart societies. And one of the strategies we did, which she led, was to go to the um, UN Foundation. And we became one of the very first beneficiaries of Ted Turner with a project called Channeling the Outrage, which actually led to the creation of the Framework Convention Alliance, which is now the NGO that leads the work on the convention. 
So we saw very critically the role of civil society was needed as a bulwark both to governments who would be reticent to act as well as to industry. And when looking at civil society, um, the health professionals, the World Medical Association, the International Council of Nurses, the International Dental Associations, we all saw as intimate close partners. And they were particularly important if we wanted their voice and their reach to be able to address cessation in the patients they saw every day. Right. Now, okay, so very interesting because when we first started covering uh, the vaping issue, which was five years ago in 2015, right towards the end of the year, and we were lucky to have uh, Dr. Farsalinos on right away. We had uh, David Sweener on right away. Uh, and right there in spring of 2016, when the Royal College of Physicians in uh, Britain released uh, their you know, famous uh, smoking without uh, nicotine without smoke report, uh, John Britton came on uh, the show. So this is like the day after it was released. So we're lucky enough to have had that perspective really actually from the whole time. And Linda Bald came on the show that summer. And what we really learned very quickly was that there was a continental divide, a, a, an, actual, an actual rift that had opened uh, within public health. And really, essentially, that's all we've been covering ever since. I mean, the problem with respect to vaping exists, I think, within public health only. If, 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 if the gap was breached or bridged in public health, I think that would then lead regulators one way or the other, really, quite frankly. It's, it's really public health has got to kind of figure it out. And, and you used to be on one side, I guess, and now are you technically on the other? Is that a... No, I've always been pro-health. And all I've done is uh, accept that the dis technology disruption happens in sectors. And when technology disruption happens, for good, you need to harness that. And here, the big technology disruption was stuff that really started with the work of Michael Russell and Jed Rose when Michael Russell invented the uh, nicotine gum and, um, of course, Jed Rose, the nicotine patch. Remember, that was the 1980s. That was the true start of harm reduction in tobacco because that was separating nicotine for good from everything else that killed you. And we accepted that. We saw that as a pharmaceutical solution. All that happened now is that the harm reduction products have become more enticing to consumers who don't really like to stick a patch on and may not want to chew gum, but they're getting the same benefits that they perceive from combusted cigarettes without most of the harm. Would you agree there is a rift with inside public health on the issue? There is a major rift. Um, and I think there is a continental divide you spoke about is, is very real. I mean, the fact that Public Health England, ASH UK and London, the academics you named, whether it's Linda Bald, are in the same camp as Martin Dockerell, who you also had on, and the scientists, there's, there's one clear voice. And the voice is aimed, it seems to me in England, at answering one simple question. How do we bring down the smoking rates fastest among the people of England to save the most lives? That should be the central question that WHO should be asking. In the US, it, it, it turns out a very different way. Um, and I'd love to get to my, my graphic uh, in a second. But I think in the US, the focus has become trapped around the protection of kids above everything else. And the need to ensure that no kids go on to vape or smoke. And of course, we don't want kids to vape or smoke without ever considering the consequences for adults and for adult smokers. Now, maybe if you just go back to that graphic, because I'd love to make a point. So one of the things which um, you know, I've looked at 
first of all, must remember that everything you do in tobacco control can only be measured in terms of years and often decades. It takes a long time for you before you start seeing the harms of tobacco. So you can smoke 20 years before the lung cancer starts, but then it's too late to actually do much about it. What we're showing in, in, in the graphic here is that we're currently on the top path, which suggests that um, the amount of smokers in the world will rise from about seven to eight million today per year. You know, we've kind of become used to very big numbers with the COVID-19 pandemic, but these are truly mega numbers happening quietly by stealth every single day, eight to nine million deaths. They will rise to 10 million deaths a year even if we do everything perfectly, there's very little we can do to stop that for the next few years. But from then on, the actions we take today will be the equivalent of flattening and closing the curve, the kind of discussion we're talking about now about COVID-19, except the time span will be many years, not many weeks as it is with COVID-19. And the way to do that, we believe, is to throw out all the possibilities we have on the available reduced risk products and step up our work on cessation. And we believe we could get onto a path that would save between three and four million deaths per year. Now there's no other public health intervention, none that can have that kind of benefit. And I think one other point to remember is that all the deaths um, on this curve, the deaths over the next 30 to 40 years are in people who are adult smokers today. So they are already smoking. Getting them to not start is too late because they've started. Getting them to quit and quit using either cold turkey cessation products, uh, e-cigarettes, snus, heated tobacco products, patch of gum, will put them onto that curve to lower survival. If not a single kid, not a single child, picked up a cigarette today, it would not impact those curves until beyond 2050, 2060 because of the lag it takes between the onset of smoking and the appearance of the major causes of death and disease. I'm going to be a bit glib uh, or, or not uh, in saying, can we trust these models better than the forecast for COVID? It's a great question. Um, first of all, these models are um, based upon sophisticated thumb sucks. And I'll admit that. Sophisticated uh, in the sense that the epidemiology and the trends of the relationship between cigarette use and outcomes are known with a really great degree of certainty. We've had strong cohort studies going back to Sir Richard Dawes, Sir Richard Peter, the 50s and 1960s. So we know the relationship between smoking and outcomes. We also know very well from the work of Prabhat Jha and many others, the fact that if you quit at certain ages, there will be benefits and the benefits continue all the way through to quitting at age 60, where you still are going to have many years of increased survival. That's based on empirical evidence. That is going into the models. What we don't have data on is with certainty is what exactly will these reduced risk products do in terms of mortality decline? And the proxy we're using is to say, well, we know that the stuff in an e-cigarette or in a heated tobacco product in terms of the cancer-causing agents are 95% reduced compared to a cigarette, let's make an assumption that that does not translate into a 95% reduction in mortality, but rather a 60% reduction in mortality. That gives you those curves. 
They may very well be even sharper. So the assumptions are not that many, unlike with the COVID-19 uh, models. The big one being, what are the long-term benefits? And we can model those based upon our knowledge of the exposure. As time passes, our modeling will get far better. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I, I hope that you can understand. For some, for us that have been covering uh, basically epidemiology uh, for all intents and purposes for the last five years, and hearing a lot and seeing a lot of kind of science that doesn't quite match, you know, it seems a bit political coming, from, you know, from one on one side and then research on the other side, too, as well, clearly showing that there's a difference. I mean, the, the hysteria around vaping seems to be out of control. Look what, you know, happened with the epidemic and Evali will touch each specifically here pretty, pretty shortly. So, I mean, is it fair to say that I mean, I've asked this now, uh, this year and at, towards the end of last year, our sense is that there's something broken with epidemiology. Do you think that there may be something uh, not quite right? I don't want to blame it on specific scientists. Just has ideology cracked through into the science of epidemiology? I think the science of epidemiology is great. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fanatical epidemiologist. I, I don't think it's um, epidemiology per se that's broken. It's the misuse of epidemiology that is the issue. And there are certain types of ways you do your studies that allow you to answer some questions. There are some which lead you to spurious conclusions. And we've seen retractions of uh, you know, famous scientists, one who was on your show a, a couple of years ago, uh, made the claim that e-cigarettes increases heart disease when it turned out, when you looked at the paper, and it got published in the American Heart Association Journal, uh, they retracted it when it realized that there's a kind of little basic problem with that. The heart attacks occurred um, uh, before people even started using e-cigarettes. So for A to cause B, it must precede it. Now, in that case, like, <laughs> and that I would say is the misuse or the abuse of epidemiology, either intentionally or out of complete ignorance. And so, but the beauty of the tobacco control epidemiologists is that the large studies, the sort of Sir Richard Peter type studies, have involved tens of thousands of people followed for many years. They haven't relied on small nitty gritty studies. And the stability of the figures that we get out of that have been shown up and proven year after year in the mortality data that we get. We know the relationship between smoking and lung cancer because of the British doctor's study, repeated in the Chinese studies, and repeated in many other studies, most recently in a very large Cuban study. So, all right. So I, I, I'm not hopeful to actually get anybody to really slam the science too much. And, and you know, it's interesting because most of the, the complaints happen when it comes down to kind of the funding issue. And, and I think that's, you know, it's, that's a double-edged sword, which we're going to get to in a sec. Let's jump to the epidemic. So when it comes to the epidemic of teen vaping, we had a problem with that because calling something an epidemic seems to be that that should be a disease. But yet, you know, going into uh, the the COP document today, you know, you could clearly see the tobacco epidemic. It's a worldwide epidemic. So there's kind of a history of calling something that's not really particularly disease oriented, but more of a behavior as an epidemic. So help us understand from your point of view, seeing what happened in the United States in, the, in September of 2018 and subsequently when it came to the teen youth epidemic, was that an appropriate term? And if so, why? Yeah, first, uh, just again, a, a little defense of the term epidemic. I think that um, you're right that one needs to distinguish between 
um, a smoking epidemic or the deaths that are caused by smoking being an epidemic. So lung cancer rates um, started spiraling out of control after the First World War. And that led people to say, what is causing this dramatic increase in lung cancer, a true epidemic of lung cancer? And they didn't know what it was until the early studies started nailing it down to be predominantly smoking. So to go to um, last year, and uh, you know, just a little side story. Uh, you know, we we watch the, the the story unfold that there was a case of respiratory uh, symptoms being hospitalized. A lot of young kids were being hospitalized. There were tragically a number of deaths. Um, and when we started looking at it by June, July. Um, it became very clear that there were side stories saying this had nothing to do with e-cigarettes, this had nothing to do with nicotine, and appeared to be due to something else. Um, we were working with a group, and we're still working with a group of data analytic experts who specialize in um, tracking how people are having discussions in social media. So we went to them with a challenge. And the challenge was to say, years ago, um, a um, online means of tracking flu epidemic was developed, which preempted the ability of the, um, the, the state and the public health authorities to detect increases because it was measuring chatter online, searches for things related to epidemics. And through those early work, 10 years ago, they were able to detect the start of some of the flu and related um, outbreaks in parts of the world and intervene. So it occurred to us that today we are much more sophisticated in our use of social media. Would we be able to detect um, epidemics or outbreaks of untoward effects associated with e-cigarettes by analyzing the data coming out of social media? Of course, all anonymized. And the answer was yes, and we now have that system in place. And when we started looking at the evolution of what was being called the Ivali epidemic, it was very clear that this was a THC-contaminated uh, epidemic, THC cartridges contaminated, showing a traditional epidemic curve starting in June, rising, going very fast up and going down in December and virtually going away. Um, if you looked at the chatter, you would be able to understand who was using the THC, the spread of it, uh, the alerts, the kind of issues going on. But remember, it took CDC almost all the way to December to declare that this was not a predominantly e-cigarette nicotine-related outbreak. The FDA uh, made those comments a little bit earlier. But the damage had been done. And the damage that was done was, um, it was started when the media, uh, a number of, um, say, activist uh, NGOs, uh, started saying this is definitively driven by e-cigarettes in youth. Um, we need to take urgent action, and we saw a plethora of actions across the U.S., which continue today, on the basis of this being something that was killing kids and putting them into hospitals. Not only in the U.S., we saw it spread worldwide, and I happened to be in India when the Cabinet of India ruled that e-cigarettes should be banned, and one of the things cited um, was that this was the height of this epidemic, and the kids in India were going to die um, equivalently of e-cigarettes and nicotine. When the whole thing turned out not to be due to e-cigarettes and nicotine, the policies uh, had already moved so fast that some of them have got entrenched. And the consequences we saw pretty quickly that people who had moved from cigarettes onto e-cigarettes to save their lives were moving back 
thinking that these things are as dangerous or maybe even more dangerous um, than an e-cigarette. And the panic that got stirred in the market, it stirred among consumers, I would say so continues. In the foundation, we thought the best way to understand this is to look at what is happening to public perception of nicotine itself compared to cigarettes. And we were able to show that across the world, the level of misunderstanding about nicotine versus cigarettes is at an all-time high. So we've got, if you just use one marker question, there are many ways of testing it. But if you ask people, do you think that cancer is predominantly caused by um, nicotine, that nicotine is the main cause of cancer? Um, the answer is, the answer should be, by the way, no, it is right. not. Of course. Um, but if you go to countries like South Africa, over 70% said yes. Um, across India, it was 60%. Uh, many European countries in the 50s. The lowest figure we got was in the UK in the low 40s. Thankfully, they did show the best because they've had the best education for a long time, but still 40%. Now, if you think, what does that mean? In our view, what it means at a deeper level is that people see and equate nicotine as damage and harm. Usually, that's a pretty good thing to actually believe, given that it's delivered in a pretty dirty, combustible cigarette. And it's not the nicotine per se, which would kill, but the cigarette. But that distinction doesn't really matter uh, if you don't have alternatives of the market. But we now do have alternatives of the market. And we need to have a better way of helping people understand that the nicotine is not going to kill them and that they will die if they actually move to a combustible product or a smokeless uh, to product in India, which will also kill you. So let me just jump in here because there's a couple of questions that have come out of what you just said. Let's just set nicotine aside for a moment and jump back to um, the story from when you were in India with regard to the hysteria around the vaping-related lung illness. First off, do you believe that the CDC may have cost lives or at least caused undue harm by dragging its heels uh, on coming clean with regards to what was causing it? You know, it's all very easy in, in retrospect to blame agencies. I don't know the minds or attitudes, but certainly the fact that we had messages out there for such a long period of time blaming something that was innocuous uh, would have got people to shift their behavior and act in ways that will increase their harm and damage. What role do you believe the media had in perpetuating the hysteria? Well, you know, we tracked what was going on in the media over that period, and it was fascinating to see, if you just stand back, anybody can test this by looking at Google Trends. It's almost as if um, cigarettes disappeared as a major cause of death and disease and were being replaced by e-cigarettes being more damaging or maybe even maybe equal. Um, the trends in the media picked that up, and you had stories of terrible consequences among kids, always with the use of the word vaping. My colleague Charles Gardner has written exquisitely about this and how the term vaping got confused and used, at the one hand, to link it to THC very rarely, which is what drove the epidemic. But usually in the minds of people, vaping was associated and is associated with e-cigarettes and a nicotine product. The media either deliberately played into that confusion we know that there probably were some, the campaign for tobacco-free kids made it their raison d'etre to try and make sure that everything was done 
to end the sale of e-cigarettes, if not all e-cigarettes and at least flavored e-cigarettes, and to portray them as the major damage, uh, harm uh, that would be caused in the tobacco area. Often forgetting that there's a far more damaging uh, product out there, the combustible cigarette, which certainly is killing. Our view was that the media, the biggest mistake that they made then, and they still make today, is that I can't see why you would ever have a responsible article about e-cigarettes and any of the potential harms that does not compare those to the consequence of combustible use. Right. It's that massive gap that drives the reason to actually move towards harm reduction. Instead, they will often say that um, this is not completely safe, which of course nothing is completely safe. But comparing the safety of an e-cigarette to the safety of a cigarette puts it in the context of who you're trying to reach, mainly the smoker and people who are considering using combustible cigarettes. Do you think that overall just the adult smoker has just been written off? I think in the U.S. they have. And um, I, 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 mean, I see that all the time. I think there are many reasons for it. One is uh, I think there's enormous stigma against smokers. They're regarded as dumb, stupid, having brought it upon themselves. They should know better. They should simply quit and go away. Um, forgetting the fact that they are dependent. Um, many struggle with this all their lives. Many have chronic conditions and chronic diseases. They are entitled and should be explicitly supported to try and reduce their risk, to try and find better ways of cessation. I think the empathy and the tolerance uh, followed in the UK and a number of European countries is in sharp contrast to the approach in the US. I would agree with that. Um, about that, uh, you know, nicotine's wrapped up in that. There's some, there's something about nicotine that the opposition to um, vaping as a tool for harm reduction um, has in their mind. And so obviously tobacco control, and you alluded to this earlier, did a great job demonizing nicotine a couple of decades ago. Um, and that kind of is boomerang back now. It just much like smoking uh, related diseases, they show up and can do their, you know, they can take your life 20, 25 years later. We're seeing kind of a similar de uh, demonization of nicotine now showing up and it's just rearing its ugly head. Yeah, no, you, you're quite right. And I think that our data shows that what you're saying is absolutely true. You're seeing a, a hardening of attitude. And, um, I, I think part of it goes back to the fact that um, nicotine is so strongly associated with combustibles, which are the industry, that anything that they say are going to be disproved. And I mentioned in the beginning, part of the blame may be ours uh, in doing the inquiry, which showed that you can't trust the industry. And certainly during the 1990s, uh, maybe for many years, there's a lot you can't trust about them. But the one thing which has changed has been the quite dramatic move and massive investment in reduced risk products and harm reduction by many of the major companies. And of course, the major multinationals, but even the Chinese state monopoly is now investing in innovation, science, and research. And I remind people that you know, years ago, you would never think that a motor vehicle manufacturer could be doing anything good since it was spewing out all this gunk uh, in terms of uh, the air pollution being caused by gas. And now the technology option has transformed that sector. Electric cars are now coming on stream and hopefully we'll see other more environmentally friendly vehicles. 
the technology disruption is happening in the West, the dirtiest, the legacy industry, and forcing people to rethink, well, if that's the case, do we not need to rethink how we can make it go faster? Surely you'd want Philip Morris, BAT, Japan Tobacco, the Chinese state monopoly, to get out of their combustibles as fast as possible, not try and retard the progress. And if they do, and they'll then be into cleaner nicotine-related products, one can presume pretty strongly that the benefit will be very large. You know, we, we look at um, the size of the investment in R&D inside industry, and earlier you asked the question about um, the transformation index. Later this year, we will release the first results of the index, ranking companies in terms of what are they doing materially that really matters to reduce their risk. And one of the key things which we'll be looking at is their investment in research and development to transform their core product, the combustible cigarette. If a company is not putting money into that big time, then they clearly are not serious about making the move. If they are, that's a good start, but it's not good enough because they need to get to scale. Are they closing down factories that are currently making combustible cigarettes and starting to shift towards their reduced risk products? That's another really big indicator. Are the marketing dollars getting behind the reduced risk products and pulled away from the combustible cigarettes? That would be another key indicator. Now that we're just going to hold that for a second because that is the end of our show. And just to let everybody know, we're going to dive into that. And before we do, we have to get into some of the controversy around uh, smoke-free worlds funding because it's kind of at the heart of whether or not tobacco control that's opposed to harm reduction is going to allow big tobacco to change their business. But before we do that, there's two points left that I want to get to uh, based on what you were just saying Specifically, actually, it, was, it struck me from the India one. First of all, you mentioned that the perception of vaping has now changed so dramatically that many people feel that it is as harmful or maybe even more harmful than smoking. We've seen uh, polls that, say, that actually use like deadlier than smoking, that kind of language. And very, very striking. You had said that for those adults that might have been just recently switched to vaping, they might go back to smoking and we'll transition into the COVID conversation here in a second from that. And you mentioned that it's a technology that can save lives. So let me ask you, do you believe that vaping is a technology that can save lives? And if so, why? Absolutely. I think that um, uh, e-cigarettes and vaping, uh, eater tobacco products, and even snus all have characteristics which have dramatically lower exposure of stuff that will kill you with great certainty. Um, how much lower we can start quibbling about in epidemiology. But if you do the analyses in the laboratory, you will see that the exposures and the constituents of those products are down by 90, 95%. So yes, if they're down by 99%, they are going to save lives. And remember, one thing we didn't stress enough is the numbers. 8 million people die every year of combustible cigarettes, 8 million. So if you're going to cut that number by 50%, 60%, we are talking about massive numbers. Um, in the case of vaping and e-cigarettes, uh, the UK belief is it's probably 95% plus in terms of the reduction in deaths. Very, very big numbers. And as I said, while SNUS may be seen as uh, you know, the, the chewing product that's particularly used in Northern Europe, 
It also potentially has the chance of displacing the smokeless products that are on the market in India, which cause some of the worst oral cancers in the world. So we now have these technology options to actually move people who are dependent on nicotine from a product that will be a 50% probability of death to one that would cut that by orders of magnitude. The question is, why aren't we going fast faster and how can we actually go faster? Now, isn't one of the reasons and a home for this way of thinking is globally WHO is a better safe than sorry attitude, the precautionary principle to be precise. Do you think that the efficacy of vaping and its you know, uh, relative risk level is one that it answers the better safe than sorry question and we should get over that? Because it really seems that that's the, that's the, that's the hard part is they go, well, yeah, but we don't know, there's not enough research and why don't we just, it's better to be safe than sorry. I think that the prudent approach for WHO is to go exactly the route that Public Health England uh, has gone. And they are very clear that uh, health professionals faced with smokers uh, need to give them a wider range of options to quit. And they know from the studies, and I think you've had um, uh, Ken Warner recently review this, yes. that not only um, are people going to reduce their risk by going on to a reduced risk products for a long time, but their permanent cessation rate will go up quite markedly compared to the use even of nicotine replacement therapy if they use an e-cigarette um, as one of their quitting tools. We have colleagues working inside the mental institutions in the UK, um, and uh, people may not be aware, but among people with schizophrenia, you have smoking rates of 70% plus. A really, really tough issue when you have profound mental health profound dependency, for them to move from that to no form of nicotine um, is basically expecting them uh, to do something which is impossible for them, placing them under enormous stress. But the opportunity to use a wide range of nicotine products, as I say, whether it's the patch, the gum, the e-cigarette, snus, heated tobacco product, people will decide what they see fits their need, their uses better. The ultimate effect will be you won't have the death rate that you do among people with schizophrenia. And remember, people with schizophrenia die 15 years less than those without schizophrenia, predominantly because of their excess use of cigarettes. So e-cigarettes are safe enough to be recommended by government? I believe they are. I, and that does not mean that we shouldn't have the long-term studies in effect. Again, the foundation sees one of its raison d'etre is actually to put in place two things. One are studies to look for, are there untoward effects? And I mentioned that we've got that in place now through our data analytics platform, and we'll start reporting, are we picking up strange things happening out there? It's always possible that there could be a heavy metal effect due to some of these things, or there could be a neurological effect. There are all sorts of things that come out of mass-based use of consumer products, but that doesn't mean that you stop them because theoretically there may be a risk. You put in place a surveillance system to look and detect whether those things are happening. But at the same time, we need the studies to actually look at what are the short, medium, and long-term health benefits on people who are moving from a cigarette to these reduced-risk products. And those are now in effect. And we have many studies around the world. Some have already reported those early studies. You know, if you think of the submission to the FDA uh, in the last uh, year or so, you know, you had uh, the, the SNUS uh, submission 
which led to them being declared a reduced risk product, was based on large epidemiology showing truly reduced risk in terms of mortality from lung cancer and a range of other issues. The PMI submission on their heated tobacco product had an enormous amount of early clinical studies, research studies showing early effects in clinical and human studies in addition to the in vitro and laboratory studies. The problem is that many people in the public health community haven't read these very large, very complex studies coming out of the industry. Those who have read them feel pretty confident and convinced that these truly are conveying benefits to the health of the population. Yeah, correct. I mean, people, everybody needs to read more studies as far as I'm concerned. Let me ask you this. Um, and the last kind of bringing it back to the Valley thing, and then we're going to be fully moving forward. With such a, a, a huge amount of bad PR, I, I mean, I would go much farther than that. I mean, it felt like propaganda. It was just every night, another uh, mainstream media newscast reporting new cases of, e of vaping-related lung illness new and new numbers for deaths. Every day, deaths. Cases, cases, deaths, kind of reminds me of COVID a little bit. It was the pre-warm-up for COVID, as I'm being glib again. But so, is it in the mandate of your organization that's got some funding? I mean, one of the things that everybody talks about that's on this side is going like, where are the big guns that come out and spend the money? 30-second TV spots on cable news, right up again. You buy them inside the newscast. You want to affect a newscast, you start buying 30-second spots. You have the ad sales team on your side. They're getting them up there, you know, setting the record straight on vaping. That makes a difference in the newsroom eventually, right? So, but nobody seems to be doing that. And is that something that's not in your mandate of your organization? Is it? And if, and if it is, why not then? That seemed to be the time to do it. Well, I think we are trying in a modest way. Um, so we have been testing and running, um, I think that sort of information stuff through social media, uh, not in the US, um, but in many other parts of the world where we, we think that we're reaching our target population. Um, of course, the US is, is important, but our, our main interests are really in the developing countries where the numbers are, you know, are really huge. You know, 300 million smokers in China, 250 million users of tobacco products in India, 50 million users in Indonesia. Uh, wow. These are numbers. That's almost half of the world's 1.3 billion smokers in three or four countries. And, and the opportunity to bring those death rates down is massive. And um, we think that if we really look back in history, look how long it took in the US to go from a smoking rate of maybe 50% among men in the early 60s when the Surgeon General's report came out to where we are today. It's 50 years. Well, the smoking rate in Indonesia is 65% plus among men, 50% smoking rate among China, meaning that those countries are where the US was 50 years ago. We cannot do it the 50-year route. We need to do it the faster approach, and the only fast approach is to go directly to harm reduction and cessation in some new combination. All the laws we do are going to be very valuable to stop kids starting, but they are not going to impact on the lives of people for 30 to 40 years. That's a really good point. That's one that I can say has not really been made on our show uh, before. When you know, bring up the kids and you go, wait a minute, you can talk kids all you want, but whatever impact with them is decades away. Interesting, interesting. 
the other thing about the kids, and you know, I think we 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 obviously are going to always be sensitive to protecting the kids. And as I said, there's no question we do not want kids to use cigarettes. We do not want kids to use vapes. We do not want kids to use a range of psychoactive substances. The problem I see is that the often overzealous approach that we take for each risk factor uh, is not thinking about how kids grow up and experiment with stuff. If you think about it, and you look at the, the US data today, um, the experimentation or the use of cigarettes is now, what, about 9%, 10% uh, uh, in the way they define it, using at least once in the last 30 days. Well, um, e-cigarette use is slightly higher than that. Alcohol use is three times that. Marijuana yeah. use twice that. Uh, use of um, a wide range of other uh, narcotic substances is somewhere around those levels. We need to take the children's needs holistically and think about what is our real goal in health. I remember speaking to colleagues from the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids about that, and I asked them a very simple question. Do you believe your job is done if not a single kid started smoking and vaping tomorrow in terms of improving the health? And the answer was yes. And I said, but what happens if one of the untoward effects of that is that you're going to push kids into even higher levels of alcohol, already three times cigarettes, or higher levels of marijuana, already twice that of cigarettes, or perhaps into a range of opioids and a range of other psychiatric substances. Don't we need to come together as a community and say, what is in the best interest of the overall growth and development of the brains and development of kids, and make sure that the least damaging products are those which are the least uh, regulated and those which are the most damaging are the most regulated and the information is put out accordingly for kids to understand. Well, I still have to see that happen. And there are very few countries in the world which take that holistic approach to think about the overall development of the child and the fact they will experiment with something and particularly in adolescence because that's the very definition of the period of adolescence. So let's do a quick uh, kind of uh, uh, shotgun approach here. Campaign for tobacco, tobacco-free kids overall. Overall, campaign for tobacco-free kids, helping or hurting? I think they are helping kids. To be honest, I do think they're making a big impact on, on kids and kids in smoking and, and tobacco. For the overall societal impact uh, on adults and their parents and their grandparents, they're forgetting about the health of the parents and the grandparents of the very kids they're protecting. So, truth initiative, helping or hurting? Again, a, a mixed bag. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, uh, they're, they're, there's a lot they're doing which is good, but their blind spot is this whole area of harm reduction and reduced risk products. Um, sadly, because if they joined forces with the kind of work we're doing, we would have a great complementarity in mind. And if they don't like uh, e-cigarettes and they don't like reduced risk, they feel there's something not quite right about going that route, fine, keep quiet about it and focus on where you really have the biggest impact. But don't stop others who actually believe this is a route to save the lives of adults uh, moving ahead vigorously. And don't fund organizations in developing countries where there isn't the means to have this kind of open discourse about what the truth may or may not be. And you have unopposed ability to reach large populations and policymakers with one side of the story. That is damaging. Bloomberg, helping or hurting? Um, if you're talking about um, Michael Bloomberg himself, and the 
and it's again, it's a paradox. If I, if I think of him holistically, I think of all his work in climate change, in cities, uh, he's, a, he's a stunning force for good. There's a blind spot, and this is the sole blind spot that I really have a big disagreement with. But overall, think about the way we spoke about the transformation index, the need to measure companies, dirty companies, and encourage them to move incrementally through investor pressure to change. He's on the board of what is called SASB, one of the accounting standards body in the US, very prestigious group. And under his guidance, they put out guidelines to the oil and gas company, to the food companies, to the pharmaceutical companies to do exactly what I'm saying. One of the guidelines is for the tobacco companies. So you read his own SASB tobacco guidelines. They talk to investors about rewarding companies who are moving towards R&D to reduce risk of their products. I can't understand why he can accept that in the realm of his work on SASB. He not accept it through the work of Bloomberg Philanthropies. It's a mystery. So let's jump over to um, COVID. Uh, COVID-19 social distancing and stay-at-home policies lead to increased dependence on tobacco as stress coping tool. Uh, and I think, I believe this is uh, your release. I think if that's the case, yes, it is. And this came out on May 11th. And I'll get you to talk talk to it. Obviously, the issue here is that it's had an impact. So fill us in on what you believe this impact is. Yeah, well, first, so what we, we did um, just uh, six weeks ago was to go to Italy, India, South Africa, the US and the UK, where there are different types of lockdowns in effect and focus on asking 1,500 smokers and users of tobacco products in each country, how were they coping? What were they doing in terms of um, their levels of anxiety and how were they feeling? The big findings across the board were not surprisingly that levels of anxiety um, and mental health concerns were extremely high, twice as high in households where there was a COVID-19 person, um, a, a member of the household, when they were asked, well, what is your approach to deal with the stress and anxiety? The number one mechanism was to use nicotine-related products, which surprised us in some countries. We thought alcohol would emerge higher, but it didn't. We then asked about people's intention and their desire to quit. And generally, we found pretty high levels of interest in quitting, but they don't have the means to do it effectively. So many were going to think they were going to try cold turkey and most will fail. Very few had access to e-cigarettes or to reduced risk products like NRTs. Either they were banned from being able to move out of the house or they were banned from purchasing them. The most severe country of the lot, of course, was my own country, South Africa, where a prohibition, a complete ban on the sales of tobacco products was put in effect. Um, It's still in effect. And the consequences of it Um, you can actually predict from the prohibition era of the US. It's fueled an illicit market. Uh, It has not led to people reducing their consumption, but it's led to people finding ways to buy cigarettes on the black market illegally at a cost that is much higher than usual, meaning that they're using some of the money they would be able to use for household food to continue their dependence because they were dependent. Illicit is developing a whole group of... um, illicit sales on the streets of South Africa, very well described um, over the last couple of weeks, um, leading to real concern about what this means in the post-COVID period. The summary is that 
I think if we if we stand back, what we really should be learning is that this COVID-19 period is unique for us to go through. It's uh, We are not through it. It's going to be a long period of time. We need to think about the, using the word empathy for all the people under lockdown and think about the stresses on their mental health, on those with substance abuse, and how can you actually deal with that during this period of lockdown or increased stress people are going through. Many are unemployed and many are unsure where they're going to find employment. To impose on that an effort to try and have some experimental approach to get them to quit smoking, and in the case of South Africa, quit drinking alcohol, was simply going to raise the level of stress, anxiety, and fuel illicit activity, all entirely predictable. Um, so I think it's also going to raise the fact that as we move, hopefully towards the end of the pandemic, we're going to have to accept that the people emerging from the pandemic are probably less healthy than they were going into the pandemic. We know that levels of physical activity have collapsed. Levels of unhealthy food consumption have gone up. And cigarette smoking in many settings have also gone up. You can say, well, that's terribly bad news. It is. But it's also an opportunity to give higher priority to actually addressing healthy related behaviors in a better, more integrated way. And with empathy, always thinking about the mental health consequences uh, right up front. I certainly agree. Uh one of the things that your organization is doing is you've put out a call, a request for proposals. Why don't you just walk us quickly through what this is? Yeah, so, you know, we, like everybody else, at the start of the, the COVID-19 uh, epidemic in early March, uh, we were asked, so what do you think um, is going to happen to smokers? And we looked at first principles and said, well, we know that smokers have a dramatically higher risk of influenza um, disease as well as um, death from flu. Um, we know the same for other infectious diseases, not viral, but tuberculosis being one. We immediately jumped to the fact to say, well, we're going to expect the smoker uh, to be at substantially greater risk and we should see excess numbers of smokers appearing in the case series of the hospitals around the world. Well, pretty soon by late March, we started seeing the first reports coming out of China and that was not the case. There were some which showed, you know, some levels of smokers, but generally the um, case series was showing maybe 15%, maybe a little bit higher of the men being admitted for COVID-19 were smokers in a population where 50% of the men smoke. My first uh, sense was, well, this can't possibly be a, a protective effect or benefit. It must be due to a failure of the way we're measuring smokers. Maybe the smokers are dying at home and they're not making it into the hospital. Maybe the hospitals aren't recording the smoking status properly. And by the way, all of that is probably true to some extent. But then we started seeing British studies which don't require pre, which actually had pre-recorded smoking status, very large studies. And they were showing again, an underrepresentativeness of smokers in the case series, and the fact that it appeared as if smokers were at lower risk then former smokers, who appear to be at slightly higher risk, and certainly substantially lower than non-smokers. Leading to the question, so what is driving this, if it is true? And we started looking around, and many colleagues, you had Constantinus um, on your show before, um, has been looking very rigorously at the immunological and virological evidence, and published extensively with many others around the world outside of the field of tobacco control, 
making the case for there being potentially two or three mechanisms related to why there was a plausible reason to believe that nicotine may in fact have a dampening effect on the inflammatory response as one of the mechanisms. We thought as a responsible foundation, looking broadly at this issue, we need to get clarity on this. And the RFP really calls on researchers worldwide to apply for funds to both address the epidemiological question, which we obviously remain um, have an open mind to which way it's going to go. But the central question is, does smoking increase, reduce, or have no effect on COVID admissions and mortality? And secondly, what are the potential mechanisms uh, at play if nicotine could in fact be playing a role? And then thirdly, and as I said a few minutes ago, we think that we need to look substantially into the future and think about how do we address the need to return to a healthy society, a healthy population? How can we use the fact that many people, particularly in middle age, um, are very aware of the fact that they could have had serious consequences of COVID-19 and may have a greater awareness and need to think about seriously quitting? How do we support them coming out of the pandemic to use this almost big teaching moment as a chance to accelerate an end to smoking. And that's the third category um, of projects that we are calling for people to work with us on. So with research being such a big, important part of your mandate, let's dive in now to the elephant in the room, and that is big tobacco, you know, the funding mechanism for your foundation, because that does limit your ability to work with governments and to attract researchers, I would imagine. And here, of course, is just, we're going to do a couple of examples, but this is the first one. So Derek Yock's journey to the dark side is now complete. From our good uh, friend here, Dr. Stanton Glantz. So, and he's remarking, of course, that you have somehow transitioned from being a good guy to a bad guy um, with uh, this foundation. This is a good uh, light, maybe lighthearted. I don't know if it's lighthearted enough, but this is an example. Talk to us about the pushback that you've been receiving um, and how that may or may not be damaging your guys' efforts? Yeah, a, a really uh, critical question. And I think first, you know, I, I, I think, you know, and I can understand some of these initial comments. I think what happened with many colleagues, um, including Stan, people at WHO, many of whom I worked with intimately over many years, hired, brought on board into WHO, um, I think they feel a, a sense of betrayal that one of theirs has debt to actually go into the field of harm reduction and take money from the devil, uh, knowing that we had all these inquiries that showed the dark side of what the industry was up to. Um, and um, in fact, it was uh, Stan years ago uh, who I first asked when I was still in South Africa, if I have a choice between hiring an epidemiologist or political scientist which one would be the most useful to advance tobacco control? And quick as a flash, I remember he said, hire the political scientist. In many ways, that shows uh, he has gone forward, um, which has brought a lot of benefit for general tobacco control, focus on the politics versus the underlying epidemiology. I stuck with the epidemiology. Anyway, so I think that the first, uh, the first period um, was... Um, was, was difficult because we, we were under extreme pressure to be able to show that we could find high quality grantees, scientists who would be willing to work with us and that they would produce work 
of substance that would have impact. We know that we faced unprecedented pressure from a campaign funded by Bloomberg, a $20 million campaign through Bath University called the Stop Campaign, was put up to explicitly track us and try and dissuade, which is a polite word, um, people um, who wanted to work with us. There were ad hominem attacks, uh, there was harassment, and there still is harassment of researchers and scientists in ways that are not accepted uh, by most organizations. And in fact, if you look at the Wellcome Trust or Nature, they make it very clear that scientists who practice that kind of harassment or ad hominem attacks may not either publish or receive grants for them because it's regarded as simply unacceptable. But they don't seem to be applying that when it comes to the kind of ad hominem attacks we face. The good news, though, is that while the first fear we had in that early years was that nobody would actually want to work on these issues, we found the opposite to be the case. And now, um, you know, a couple of years in, uh, our annual report shows that we've been able to uh, approve over $160 million in grants. We have researchers in many countries producing high-quality science. Our own teams are producing some of the first reports looking at the long-term trends of nicotine. We've unraveled and dug deep into why have we had such slow process, progress on smoking cessation. And you can read about the reports that show that there's, no, there's a very good reason why there's less attractive interest by the pharmaceutical industry in developing products that are needed, knowing that we haven't had much breakthroughs for 40 years. And then, of course, the work on reduced risk products is also accelerating. Um, so I feel that um, those, those critiques starting are partly understandable, and as I said, can be traced to the sense of betrayal. But I think they go even deeper. They go to the fact that there's a lack of curiosity among many in tobacco control. They have not willing, been willing to step into the world of science and, in, and innovation and see that there is a true disruptive moment underway across tobacco companies, biotech, e-cigarette companies, even pharma, looking at how they can repurpose and use nicotine to end the killing and the deaths being caused by combustible cigarettes. So I remain eternally optimistic. I mean, I, I think that we're actually at the peak of the critique. Maybe we've actually passed the critique because we're starting to see some reversals. Look what happened in Hong Kong last week. Um, Hong Kong approved um, what was going to be a really tight ban on e-cigarettes. It got reversed in the Legislative Assembly, uh, really on the grounds of saying that the smokers will benefit by actually being on a reduced risk product. We know that other parts of the world are starting to look as well at a future. The FDA decision on SNUS, while SNUS may not be your sort of everyday product uh, in the North American market, some of the related products like Zin, which is a nicotine thing you stick in the mouth, certainly are gaining strength. But the fact that the FDA is now a supporter of harm reduction in the tobacco field puts them at a 180 degree difference to the European Commission, which has banned SNUS across the European Commission, setting up an interesting opportunity for a transatlantic debate, where on the one hand, we have Public Health England supporting e-cigarettes, the US not, now we have the US supporting SNUS and the European Commission not. Clearly, the only way to resolve this is through better science, better research and dialogue across the Atlantic. And as that gets resolved, I think we will see an acceleration and acceptance of harm reduction. I would say one other thing, Brent, is that 
the proof of our work, we always felt, was not going to be in rhetoric, you know, good guys, bad guys, and so on, but it's going to be in the work we produce. Well, over the next few months, and already we've started in the paper I put out for the trends, we highlight how we're addressing material gaps in the framework convention. We are investing in better cessation. We're investing in harm reduction. We're investing in the neglect of women. And shortly, we'll be putting out reports showing that for many countries in the world, lung cancer death rates in women exceed breast cancer death rates. Yet there's been no uproar about this by the women's movement, by WHO, who's still sitting back thinking that this is a gender-blind epidemic. It isn't. And we're mm. seeing these shifts happening faster. And I, and I think the, the, the f women's lung cancer actually even early on was one of the big warning signs that there was an actual problem back 60 years ago or so. Let me just, I want to just make sure that we really fill out for our viewers how much animus is out there for your foundation because um, of the funding from PMI, which is amazing. A billion dollars, like $80 million a year. I mean, you know, if that's clearly you guys have set up a, a, a situation where they don't have influence. And the reason why I'm not getting into the, all that kind of charges is because it, 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 it's already been handled, I think, in a very clean way. The pushback is that somehow they can manipulate the cost. I mean, it's just all conspiracy theory stuff. And to me, that's not really what I want to get into. However, though, this is definitely the conspiracy oriented kind of thing where it's like three degrees of separation. This was out March 20th. Public Health England paid group linked to big tobacco. So doctors have criticized the organization responsible for protecting the nation's health over its work with a vaping pressure group that is itself linked to the world's largest multinational tobacco company. And this is a 40,000 uh, pound know, uh, job that they gave to the nicotine, the new nicotine alliance to produce some YouTube videos, which is, you know, it's not Public Health England taking money, it's them hiring uh, and spending some money with a group that's got some experience and understanding and and expertise. But then they go just completely down the rabbit hole because I guess NNA is connected uh, with uh, Smoke Free uh, uh, Smoke Free World. You know, I mean, I don't want to ask. I don't want to get to play in the game. Are they? Who they? Are they? I mean, even if they are, that's fine in my opinion because, it, you know, organizations should have the right to get funded be upfront and transparent about their process and then go out and work with other groups. Why is it like one half can't, can't be active in the marketplace? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the main response is, is to, you know, we, we put everything on our website about the efforts we've gone to to address this issue, both of transparency and independence. Under the laws we operate under, the, the US IRS rules require that independence to be in place and require that there's an external audit of it which we pass with flying colors and stick it all on our website. Every grantee we support, uh, we put on our website and we give their names and so on. Um, I would say that um, our level of transparency, I believe is often in excess of Bloomberg Philanthropies, the campaign for tobacco-free kids. Um, and there's a deep assumption um, that bias can only be, um, only occur when the source of funding is the private sector not when it's the public sector. And yet we know that there are many examples of people who to get their NIH grant are going to have to have some kind of result that is prejudged by the NIH and their system. I think that the main, the main thing we are learning is that we want people to move to judge the quality of the research on the methods. 
be as critical as you possibly can about how the study was done. Is there a flaw in the way it was designed that can lead to adverse results? If you find that, then you should be critical. But if not, the source of the funding becomes pretty immaterial, particularly when it isn't able to be used as a marketing tool or PR tool, which is certainly the case with us. Yeah, it seems to be that obviously it's, regardless, I don't want to put a left-right issue on it. Sometimes that you see that more clearly in other issues, but let's not use that this one. But but there is seems to be always one side that complains about where the funding comes from, but never talks about where its money comes from. It's like manna from heaven is where its money comes from because they're right. And so they're not really funded in any dastardly way. Yeah, I had a col- I had colleagues. One was the previous head of the World Bank Health, Richard Feacham. And the one was the editor of the British Medical Journal, Richard Smith, who wrote a wonderful piece called The Fallacy of Impartiality. Ah, Basically touching exactly on this point. And the point is that all sources of funding carry biases. All sources. The challenge of the good scientist and the challenge of the review bodies is to make sure that the methods are carefully judged to scrutinize whether there's been any distortion in the direction of the bias. And that requires greater attention, going back, I hate to say it, to epidemiology. Good, sound epidemiological methods in all the epidemiological studies We'll un- unravel some of this stuff. I agree. Less political science and more uh, and more epidemiology. Um, just the one last part on this note, because this graphic is just too good for us not to have a quick look at it. Oops, wrong one. This one. And this is the web of influence uh, that they got here. And, you know, it's always, you know, these boxes connected to other things. We have Philip Morris up at the top with their funding of $1 billion for over 12 years in 2017. Moves down to you guys, just, you know, right there, number two. And then it starts to break out into their, their I mean, I just look at this and I just, well, that's just like a, an org chart for, for you know, doing a campaign or, or proper funding. Am I wrong to be thinking that there's nothing wrong with this? I mean, I, I see nothing wrong. With, with big tobacco funding, research funding an or- organization like yours? Well, you know, I obviously went through this, um, this period of angst in the year when we were thinking about creating the foundation in the first place. And I asked a lot of people, moral philosophers, ethicists, religious people, and some of the questions I got into asking was, can bad be turned to good? And if you can, um, are you obliged to do it? And, um, you know, I was reminded by some that, um, in fact, uh, under Jewish law, there's a phrase which requires that um, if you can save a life, you should be doing everything you possibly can to save that life. And that means that all the usual laws are suspended. Uh, The laws of Sabbath, the laws of eating pork, and so on, are suspended to save a life. Normally, those would be regarded as things to either be avoided or not to break the laws on. Well, I think in our case, we've been through um, all of these discussions. And I think the overall judgment, I know the overall judgment of uh, many people I speak to, is that the potential good, potential benefit to people's lives around the world are so great that the small downside of worrying about where the source comes from needs to be overcome And people really need to wise up to say, how do we get behind the foundation to make sure they use their money in the wisest possible way to have the biggest impact on the shortest possible time 
to save lives down the line. And that is what we constantly ask people for advice on. And we're asking anybody listening to actually give us advice and you'll see we will take it very seriously if it makes sense. Ooh, you just, you just invited me to, to put in a comment. Now, I am so thrilled that you went into the morals and ethics part right there because this is the meat kind of observation and kind of question I wanted to put out as we're getting close to the end here. We've got maybe about another 10 minutes or so to go. There's a few more questions that I want to make sure we get to. But it's this. It seems to me that tobacco control is unable to allow big tobacco to redeem itself. If they were allow, would to allow big tobacco to switch their business right over to vaping, they would lose their win. They would lose the dragon that they've slayed. They would lose the virtue that they had won with beating big tobacco. And in a way, they, they are preventing big tobacco from redeeming itself. They may be doing that, but I think that the consumers are speaking in another language and many of the investment and stock analysts are looking at it differently. Um, I think they've long moved beyond uh, looking at what uh, WHO or some folk um, proposed to reduce risk, and they're looking at the numbers. And what do the numbers tell us? That we're seeing millions of people from Japan to Korea to across Eastern Central Europe uh, to UK to US. UK, People who were smoking combustible cigarettes are moving in millions towards reduced risk products. That's creating enormous uh, demand for these, these, these things to move faster. And it, was, it, it may have been that the, the, the heated tobacco stuff started with Philip Morris, but they're no longer alone. They now have BAT competing with them in some markets. Japan Tobacco said they would never do it, are now competing. The Chinese have launched products in Korea similar to that to compete. And when you think about how you want capitalism to work for good, you want competition to lower risk and benefit the health of populations. Well, that competition is now underway. And it's almost irrelevant um, what the folk in tobacco control think. It's unstoppable because as you're starting to see millions move out of combustible and talk about the experiences, it's going to have this viral effect, which hopefully will increase the demand. And some of these changes are occurring in the face of legislation and regulations that simply don't make sense. So Korea, for example, um, as you started seeing people move dramatically out of combustibles to reduce risk products, they started equivalating um, on the tax level uh, to make the tax of the reduced risk product um, almost the same as a cigarette, a really pretty dumb thing to do if your goal is to get people to move out. But if you're partly owning a state monopoly, that does make sense because you've got to protect your own bottom line. Or if you look in parts of the world where currently there's a giant experiment underway across Europe, um, many people uh, in North America may be unaware that last month menthol cigarettes were banned across the European Commission, across the 25, 27 countries. Um, yet menthol remains in reduced risk products, in nicotine gum, in nicotine snus, in nicotine heated tobacco products, and nicotine cigarettes. Obviously, the big question is going to be what are the menthol cigarette people going to do? Are they going to move to another cigarette with a less of a menthol flavor? Or are they going to use this as a chance to quit completely or move to a reduced risk product? This giant experiment is profoundly important, not just for Europe, but to inform what needs to happen in the US, where menthol cigarettes are still commonly used, 
And while menthol cigarettes haven't been touched in terms of a ban or restriction, e-cigarettes with flavors in menthol are being restricted and banned. It's just a 180-degree wrong policy. Mm. And I think in time, the, the enormous ambiguity and the contradiction in it will actually come to the fore, and things correct themselves over time. I, well, I can tell you for sure, like with our viewers uh, uh, in North America, they feel like things have taken such a step back. There was the hope that the contradictions and the hypocrisies of it all would get seen through, but it just seems to be overall just, you know, every week, every month, you know, it just seems to get worse. And there's a bit of a hope lost here. And I find it fascinating that you're saying that it almost is irrelevant because the rest of the world is moving forward. The companies are competing and eventually that should break through the minds of the regulators. Is that really what I got from you there? It is. I mean, as I say, I remain uh, eternally optimistic. I think the, the arc of, of, of history in, in science generally suggests that products which were dirty tend to get cleaner. They don't tend to stick where they are. Uh, consumers tend to move towards healthier products, not less healthy products. Put those two together in time, um, it'll become a lot clearer, both from the science, the evidence, and the regulator will have to catch up with the consumer reality. They are demanding to actually find a solution to their smoking. And they don't like the stuff that's in the market. Many of them, it doesn't work for them. And the reduced risk products are meeting a valuable niche, millions of them. It'd be different if we were talking about 10,000, 20,000, but we're talking about tens of millions of people moving out of combustibles over the last few years to reduce risk products. And I think the interesting response then is, you know, I mentioned that we've looked at um, the stagnation of innovation in the cessation market, which I strongly believe is something we've got to spare. There are many people who actually want to quit forever. They don't want nicotine at all. Yet the options to them remain the same as they were in the 1980s, with maybe the exception of Chantex. Mm. But look what's happened in the last couple of months. We now have a nicotine spray, which you put into the mouth, um, being developed by Glaxo. It's on the UK market. Um, just in the last couple of weeks, a, a, a nicotine uh, inhaler, which you actually breathe into your lung, much like an e-cigarette, is being developed by a pharmaceutical biotech company going through FDA approval. I think that what we're going to start seeing is a wide range of nicotine uses and other uses um, of products to actually improve cessation. Many of them, as I say, are based on nicotine. Many may look like an e-cigarette, but actually are pharma-grade product. What's happened, I think, is that the tobacco companies started moving to become more pharmaceutical-like in the rigor of their science and the way they addressed the measurement of risk and developed some products which are closer to being a nicotine product. Zin, for example, is pretty much a, a, almost a pharmaceutical grade nicotine replacement product made by a tobacco company. And mm. now the pharma companies are having to move in the opposite direction, become more consumer friendly and realize they failed with the patch and the gum because it doesn't meet the real needs of so many smokers who want to continue with a nicotine product but not have the added risk. And that's why we're seeing the experimentation around inhalers and flavorants and all these kind sure. of things. A fascinating time. Do you think that, do you think, do you believe that an adult who chooses to have a mild nicotine habit, that's okay? Yes. You know, I think if we look at the, uh, the you know, we've had nicotine on the market for, you know, 40 years. 
at least, if you take the patch and the gum. Many users have been on the gum for 25, 30 years. Um, there's never been any serious concern about the long-term use of those products. Um, and if you look at the post-marketing surveillance and the reports that were required over the years, none. So nicotine itself um, in use in the levels that it's being used by people for, for to, as a smoking alternative seems very much to be pretty inert uh, in an adult setting. But Super. more than that, go further. You know, I think, um, you know, I mentioned right in the beginning, um, Sir Richard Peter and these giant studies that he did looking at the impact of smoking and health all around the world. Well, um, the, the, the latest uh, report he put out was following 30,000 doctors in the UK for 65 years. The largest such study in the world, the longest such study in the world. And the question he was asking was not the, the one that he'd asked in the beginning about the impact of smoking um, on adverse effects. He documented that for 50 years. He was looking at the impact of smoking on Parkinson's disease. And what do we find? And we know we've known this for 30, 40 years. The smokers, the heavier the smoker, the less the level of Parkinson's disease. And it's probably the nicotine again that is the mediating factor. Um, I mention that because in the same way as we saw strange effects with COVID-19, with Parkinson's, maybe ulcerative colitis, it may very well turn out that nicotine is not just inert, but it may have some positive uh, effects for health. Those cannot, be fair, uh, cannot actually achieve their goal if they remain encrusted in a dirty, filthy, combustible cigarette uh, product. But if they are liberated as another ingredient on the market, uh, they may very well be found to have beneficial effects. Excellent. So just so you know, we've got three questions left. So number one of the three. Many people in the vaping industry and vapors here in North America feel strongly, of course, and with a lot of good reason, that the open systems market is really what created vaping. You know, it was a consumer-led movement. It was, you know, driven by consumers. And really the whole market, you know, is originally an open systems market. Do you see that there's some conflict, I mean, between big tobacco coming in with the big, you know, with the devices like Juul, which caused so much, you know, problems in the marketplace, right or wrongly, their fault or not. Um, is there a conflict? Is there room for open systems? It, 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 are, it, are the big tobacco devices the enemy of open systems is really the question. I don't think so. You know, I spent a number of years at PepsiCo and a similar sort of issue came up when you had a number of healthy products, fairly niche products being developed by small stores, um, much more uh, closer to the the use of the food products, local, uh, organic, um, a range of very niche-specific products being developed to meet particular consumers' needs. The big fear was that if they got bought up by a big food multinational, um, their, the essence of what they were doing and their consumer needs that they were filling would be eroded. Well, generally, that has not happened. And there have been ways in which uh, large companies are able to absorb um, smaller companies with niche markets, with different approaches, and support them to do what the small ones can't do, and that is have distribution at a scale that is needed to have large impact. So I think provide, it depends on the company, it depends on the philosophy, but theoretically there's no reason why you can't have a major tobacco company 
uh, buying up small uh, open system groups. And what they would bring is better safety standards, uh, better protection on quality control and distribution to get it to wider audiences. So Canada, US and EU, what do you think the forecast is? One, two, three. Um, I think um, if I had to guess uh, who would be the furthest along to get close to public health England, it must be Canada. Um, I think the EU um, will, will take time, but it's, it's already getting there in terms of the number. And I think the US will always be tough. It's going to be a, a, a tough place and paradoxical because, as I say, the FDA has ruled uh, on, on SNUS. It'll be very interesting to see how they're going to rule on heated tobacco products. They've got to make decisions pretty soon and how they're going to rule on the e-cigarettes. And it could very well be that they're going to rule in favor of the science, which I suspect will then favor putting the products on the market and allowing them to carry some of the reduced risk warnings. If that's the case, then you'll have the federal agency in conflict with some of the activist NGOs, and that'll be a fun period, but um, nothing unusual. All right. So our last question then is all about endgame. Back when we first started covering this issue, we heard that term a lot. I recall uh, Dr. Raymond Fong from uh, University of Waterloo just after he had received that $8 million funding. Uh, he came on the show and surprisingly it was endgame, endgame, endgame. And I know that others were using it too, but it already seemed to be dying off. And I have to say that by 2016, I wasn't hearing it anymore. Like, well, the end of 2016, 2017, forget it. 20, I have not heard endgame. And for everybody to understand, that was the endgame to the tobacco epidemic and this huge bright spot was that vaping was the technology that could deliver it because the WHO position of like trying to prevent uptake from new smokers and trying to force smokers into complete cessation wasn't delivering against, you know, the huge, you know, obviously the scourge of, of tobacco use. What happened to Endgame? How come nobody's talking about it? And is that somehow related to the war against vaping? I think it is. And I think different people took different perspectives. You know, if you think about, um, you know, I think what uh, Dr. Fong was was doing and, you know, he sits on top of a lot of the trends in the data and really does understand where things are going. Um, I, I think the end game for many people was an absolutist, more prohibitionist uh, end game where there would be no use of any form of tobacco products. I think that has faded away. Uh, people like uh, Robert Beaglehall and others coming out of New Zealand have started to reframe that, as you're saying, in terms of end game to reduce the deaths and disease maximally. And uh, that would mean having clean forms of nicotine on the market. Um, in my view, the next big step forward is to start thinking more boldly and challenging the tobacco companies to say, we believe there is an end game possible in terms of dramatically reducing the deaths and disease. And that requires ending the sales of combustible cigarettes worldwide in a well-defined period and having a plan and a strategy agreed between industry and government to phase them out worldwide. And that was not even possible to talk about when you didn't have alternatives on the market for people to turn to. I'm talking obviously about nicotine-based products, but we do have them on the market now. And I think there's a real opportunity to think far more boldly about saying, how do we end the sale of combustibles within a defined period and find some countries that are moving pretty swiftly to get there. Some of these countries may be surprising. 
you look at the uptake on reduced risk products in a place like Lithuania, it's gone from nothing to, I don't know what the percentage of the market is, but it's sort of in the high 20s and 30%. Um, surely it's possible to find countries where they're close enough uh, to actually having less than half the sales of nicotine products be combustible cigarettes to say, now we put on the final squeeze to give the right incentives and disincentives to companies to end those sales. And of course, there are complicated issues uh, to deal with, particularly related to smuggling. And it could be for that reason that New Zealand would make a great sense. But I think that is the next frontier of the debate. And uh, when you think of New Zealand, um, you know, they were one of the first countries in the world to become COVID-19 free because they were able to control their borders. Well, presumably they could do the same and become combustible free if they put their mind to it and accelerated the transition into the smokeless and into the wide range of alternatives out there, including complete cessation. Well, it's definitely a sticky wicket, as they say, the entire issue. Uh, Dr. Yak, I want to thank you so much for coming on RegWatch. Thank you very much, Brent. That's great. great. Just stay right there for me uh, for one second. Well, that is it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please head over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com. And consider making a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. It's easy. Just dig in your wallet and find a few dollars and toss them our way. You'll be happy you didn't. So will we. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. We need to crack YouTube a little bit. I'm Brent Stafford. Thank you very much for watching.